you have your Bibles, uh, turn in them to Luke chapter 9. If you didn't bring one, there's probably a reddish colored book under a chair in front of you somewhere that has a copy of the scriptures. We're in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 7 to 17. I want to pick up this morning where we kind of left off back at the beginning of the summer. Uh, with uh, going back to Luke's narrative of the ministry, public ministry of Christ. We've uh, covered the first eight chapters, and really we touched on the first few verses of chapter 9 because we talked about leading right up to where Jesus sent out the twelve. Now this morning we're going to come back to the narrative of Luke and we're going to continue our study and go for at least another eight chapters, and then perhaps we'll pause again and, and kind of take an overview and see what we've uh, learned. Chapter 9 is an interesting chapter because it deals with uh, Jesus deepening his relationship with his disciples and leading them uh, further along in their training, which is preparing them to, to be uh, those who established the church following Pentecost in the book of Acts. And the lessons that they're learning and the things that they're coming to understand are those things that will prepare them for that future time. Another question that is raised in chapter 9, it's a very significant question, is who is Jesus? Uh, They need to get that in detail. Who is Jesus? And so uh, lessons of faith and lessons of trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, If we begin in verse 7, that is while, more or less, it's kind of a parenthesis, the apostles or the disciples are out uh, preaching. Remember, Jesus gave them authority to heal disease, to cast out demons, and to preach the the message of the kingdom. Before that time, Jesus had been doing that himself, and they had been following around watching. There always comes a time in the training and discipling of a person when you have to hand them the scalpel, so to speak. You have to turn over uh, the, the operation to them and say, now you try. And let's see what happens. And so he gave them authority. It wasn't their authority. He gave it to them. And he sent them out to do the same thing. And they went around. All of that region of Galilee, the Galilean region, they went around to the, to the towns and villages. And they were teaching the message of the kingdom. They were healing people that were sick. They were casting out demons. Uh, clearly there's a delineation between the two that we see uh, developing even as this chapter goes along. And um, as the news spreads, I mean, it just jumped, it took a quantum leap from one itinerant preacher to 12 itinerant preachers. And Herod gets wind of all that's happening in essentially his region, his province. He's the tetrarch under Roman rule, Uh, and Jewish background, and and he's kind of responsible for the area. And it's like, what's going on in my territory? As the news comes back to him of all of these things that are happening. And he wants to know, 
Who's behind this? People have crazy notions when they start looking for explanations like that. Some said, it's John the Baptist. He came back from the dead. He's, he's here to haunt you, Herod. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. Scripture doesn't say that. But um, Herod says, well, I know it wasn't him because I beheaded him. Uh, well, uh, maybe it's Elijah. Maybe it's his spirit. And so we pick up the narrative in verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others, one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. In other words, he's just taking this all in, and, you know, and, and he remembers that night because it gave, it gave him great sadness. Uh, when he was tricked into beheading John the Baptist. And he remembers seeing his head on the platter. That's kind of gruesome, but he says, I know it's not him, because I had him beheaded. Um, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him, to get a glimpse of him. Now, Herod was not interested in Jesus because he wanted to become a Christ follower. Uh, he was curious, and he wanted to know who was upsetting his area. Uh, you know, he had all this stuff going on in his territory, and he didn't know who it was. But in the course of that, he asked a question, and Luke is setting us up here with a little bit of foreshadowing. He asked a question that is very profound. In fact... It's the most significant question that any person can ask at any time in history. Who is this man, Jesus? Who is he? Ultimately, everyone who hears the gospel message has to ask that question. And ultimately, everyone must hear the gospel message if they're to have an opportunity for eternal life. They have to hear about Jesus, and then they're confronted with a very personal and a very intimate question. Who is he? What do I believe about what I've heard? And depending on how we answer that question depends on where we spend eternity. Some people say that, you know, when you get married, that's the most important decision of your life. When you choose a career, that may be the second most important decision of your life. But the reality is the most important decision of your life is the sequel to the question, who is Jesus? It becomes, and what will I do with him? How will I respond? That is the most important question and decision that you will ever ask and make in your life is what to do with Jesus Christ. And if you become convinced by the Holy Spirit working in your heart that He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Eternal Son of God, fully divine, fully human, that He came to this earth to die for your sins on the cross and shed His blood to cover your sin, and you acknowledge his lordship and his saviorship and you bow before him and surrender your life to him and invite him to be your lord and savior and to receive the cleansing 
that he offers through his atonement on Calvary. If you make that decision, that will set you on the path to eternal fellowship with God. If you make another decision, it will take you further away from God than you've ever been. And so Herod asks the question, who is this man? And Luke is foreshadowing for us uh, later on after the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus has a chance with his disciples and he asks them the question, who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And ultimately he asks us that. And who do you say that I am? Sometimes we don't answer that very adequately even though we have trusted him for salvation. Beginning then in verse 12, the scripture uh, tells us that, well, back up to verse 10, the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Apparently there was a season of time and a rendezvous established, and the disciples uh, started coming back together. And, th- and they all get together, and they say, uh, Man, you wouldn't believe what happened. <laughs> uh, you know, you can just hear them saying, We went to this village, and there was this, this guy, and his hand was all withered up, and I just said, In the name of Jesus, be healed. And I, his hand was perfectly normal. And we saw this blind person get sight back, and... They're telling this story and they're talking about the, the demons that were cast out and they're talking about how the people interacted with the message and the questions they ask. And in the midst of all this, Jesus uh, says to them, you know what, we need, to get, we need to get away by ourselves. We need to take some time, get off to the side and, and debrief. I want to hear what you have to say and we want to talk about what that means. And so he, the scripture says that... Uh, He withdrew by himself uh, to a city, taking them with him. He withdrew to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. Now, I kind of want to pause here and begin to uh, deal with this feeding of the 5,000 in very practical terms that you and I experience on a daily basis. You may say, what do I have to do with feeding 5,000? Well, you're going to be surprised. Because the, the, the sequence of events that unfold in this narrative happen to us every single day. Probably all of them some days, but at least one of them on nearly every day that we face. Notice that Jesus has a plan. He has a goal. He wants to take the disciples to a quiet place where he can interact with them about their mission experience. And the place he picks is the northeastern area of the Sea of Galilee, east of Jordan, in a village called Bethsaida, probably out on the hillside, where he's, uh, it's not exactly wilderness, but it's, it's just like open pasture land. If you can see some pictures, look it up on the internet or whatever, and take a look at some photographs even of today. And uh, that, that is a desolate area. And Jesus' goal is to get away and spend time with them. And no sooner do they arrive with that purpose in mind, than the crowd shows up. Now, 
let me ask you, how many times do you plan your day and it goes off the wire, sometimes even before lunch? You have great goals in mind. You've decided what you want to accomplish. One thing we know about Jesus is he doesn't just decide these things willy-nilly. He's, he says, I don't ever do anything on my own initiative, but I only do what I hear the Father telling me to do. So we know that his plans were not made lightly, that, that he was being guided by the Father in this decision. So he could even argue, Lord, this is what you told me to do. And now all these people are messing me up. I had a goal, and they have ruined it. How many times do we have that kind of thought process? You know, I, I had my plans. I even prayed over them. And now my day's off in left field because all these people showed up. All right, this phone call happened, this interruption over here, or whatever. And sometimes it changes our whole attitude. You know, we, we get frustrated because it's messed up our agenda. And I want you to notice how Jesus responds to the interruption. Now, there's a, there's a balance to everything, and there's such a thing as the tyranny of the urgent. I'm sure you've all read or heard something about that concept that that if your life is constantly driven by the urgent things that intrude upon you, you just kind of never get anywhere. You spend your whole time putting out fires. That's, that's the, the way other side of this situation, and that needs prayer. But in this particular case, Jesus looks at this situation, and he welcomes the crowd. He opens his arms to them to draw them in. He doesn't feel like his day's been ruined. It's just changed direction. This is a providential interruption. Every time we get derailed, we need to be asking the question, Lord, is this in your purposes? Instead of being frustrated by the fact that we're off the wire, we need to take the time to touch base and find out what God has in mind. Because as it turns out, there's a big lesson for these disciples. That's what he wanted to do, was distill down what they'd experienced and begin to make the applications. And a ready-made opportunity is about to unfold to do just that. Not in the way that he expected at least when he started, but in the way that God had purposed, as the crowd shows up and he welcomes them. And the scripture says he took time with them. He began to talk to them about the kingdom. Well, his disciples could overhear that conversation. Obviously, they were there. So he's continuing to elaborate about the kingdom. And he's healing those who have need of healing. And, and, and the day goes on. And as the day progresses, it gets toward evening, and some of the disciples had already started thinking, probably because their own tummies were rumbling. You know, they started thinking, this crowd's getting hungry, and we're running out of daylight. We need to come up with a game plan. Uh, I know that they were thinking that because this is the only miracle, by the way, that all four Gospels record, so you can go and read four different perspectives. 
You know, it's the only miracle that all four record. And in some of the other Gospels, we get some other details filled in. But uh, somebody must have checked with Judas to find out what, the, what their uh, treasury bag held. Because they learned they had 200 denarii. They'd already, they'd already started formulating a plan and trying to come up with an idea. Now, what's the possibility of feeding them? Eh, we got 200 denarii. Well, if you, if you look at a denarius as a day's wage and you divide it by 13, Jesus and the 12, uh, that only takes you about three or four weeks down the road, maybe more, maybe less. And so it's like, well, that'll deplete us and we don't have a lot of reserve ourselves. So that's kind of out. Um, Anybody got any food? No. Okay. Maybe we should send them into the surrounding villages. And we could just tell them all to, to, to go away. So, so they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, uh, it's getting late. These folks are getting hungry. There's a lot of them. Why don't we send them into the surrounding villages and countryside to, to buy some food to eat and, and just disperse the crowd? They've been thinking this through, and they've got a solution. And Jesus kind of makes inquiry, you know, and he says, well, what do you have? And, and, and it's like, oh, we got 200 denarii, and that's not going to feed this group. Besides that, it, we'd be out of money. And um, we don't have any food. I, I don't know where they thought all the villages were going to get the food either, because a lot of the villagers were probably there in the crowd, but... But they were scrambling for an idea that fit with what they could see. And Jesus comes back with a very startling suggestion. You feed them. You feed them. And it's like, how's that going to happen? Well, how did they cast out demons? How did they heal people? How did they preach? What did they learn on their trip? They're not making the connections. They've just had an exciting, amazing, fantastic time of experiencing the power of God in their lives on a daily basis. And now they're back with Jesus and they don't have a clue what to do next. And Jesus' solution is, you feed them. And they kind of come back with, well, we've been looking, and all we've come up with is this one little guy who's got, I don't know how little he was, he's probably a teenager or something, but he's got two fish and five loaves. And that's it. It's all we can account for in the whole place. And so Jesus says, well, have them sit down in groups of 50. Now, all kind of questions. I, I did some research on why they sat down in groups of 50. Um, some people related it to how Moses lined them up in the wilderness. Some people related it to another episode of, of feeding. Some, some have suggested that they lined up in the array of the Roman army when it goes out to battle. That's kind of intriguing because you think of the questions Herod's asking. A Roman 
battle contingent was 5,000 people about, and they would camp in groups of 50, and they would have two main thoroughfares through the camp, dividing it into four squares with two large avenues 60 meters wide, so they could come in from the east, west, north, or south, and then they would have the encampment, and they would be in groups of 50. If I were Herod, and I learned <laughs> that there was a crowd out on the hillside by Bethsaida that was lined up in groups of 50 on the mountainside, I would begin to wonder what this Jesus had in mind. That, that would have been intriguing. It's also been suggested that it was an easy way to keep up with them. You know, it was an easy way to, to uh, 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 arrange them for distribution. Whatever. We don't know exactly the purpose. But we do know that it gave all the gospel writers an ability to make an accurate assessment of the size of the crowd. Because they were seated in groups of 50, and all you got to do is count, you know, count groups. And you can come up with 5,000 men plus women and children. There were more than 10,000 people in this crowd. And Jesus brings the disciples around. They got baskets from somewhere and they come around. And he takes this uh, two fish and five loaves and he blesses it and thanks the Father for it. And he begins to distributed into their baskets. I know about the third or fourth basket, at least one of them had to go. Has he got a bottomless basket? What's happening to these fish? I was thinking comically, maybe somebody was looking for the ingredients label to read it and see what kind of genetic engineering had taken place with these fish. Because there's more coming out than was in there. And then each one of the disciples has a basket full when he goes up to the first group of 50, you know, kind of like this group here this morning, you know. And, and, and I go up and I uh, say to Marge, I don't know Marge, she's in the crowd, but I say, take what you want. And she takes out some fish and a loaf, maybe. And then, Nere, take what you want. And then Carol, and by this time the group is saying, What's happening here? There's fish coming out of these baskets galore. And before they know it, they not only have fed the entire crowd, but they start back up to where Jesus is, and their baskets are still full. And it's like, what happened? And they have learned something. That with God, there is nothing that is impossible. He's the Lord of the wind. He's the Lord of the waves. He's the Lord of the sea. He's the Lord of life. He's the Lord of food. He's the Lord of bread. He's the Lord of everything. He can do anything. There is nothing that he cannot do. And that leads me to ask the question, what is the difference between faith and presumption? Because this is really a lesson about faith. And when do you and I 
know when to start handing out the basket and when to go try to buy food. How do we know that? What is the difference between faith and presumption? If I had a dream tonight that I uh, was supposed to get a brand new high-end Mercedes, and I woke up tomorrow on the basis of my dream, all excited and said, okay, I'm going to go down to the dealership and trade in my Toyota, and I'm going to get that Mercedes. And Lord, I'm going to trust you to pay for it. That's presumption. Presumption is taking any action that you choose to take, expecting God to come up with the resources when you don't know His direction. And the truth of the matter is, is that sometimes we can talk ourselves into presumptive behavior. You know, we, we can get together and come up with an idea that we like, and pretty soon we're praying the prayer like, Lord, bless this plan of ours. And pretty soon we're on the edge of a limb and somebody brings a saw. But there are two verses of Scripture that come to my mind when I think about this question. One of them is in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, where Paul says, We walk by faith, not by sight. And the other is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where the Scripture says, Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. The admonition of Scripture is that God intends to do the extraordinary. But He intends to do it on the basis of what He has declared. The disciples came to Jesus and they had taken stock of the whole situation and they had some ideas and they presented them. And Jesus came back with an answer they weren't expecting, which was, feed them yourselves, how's that going to happen? Well, what do you have? Well, this is it. Okay, let's look to the Father. And then he begins to distribute the food. And what the Bible is teaching us here is that when God has given us direction, he will always stand behind his plan. And so the point of Scripture is we come to him with the questions. And when we have heard clearly from him what he desires to do, we can trust him to do it. We walk by faith, not by sight. The Bible is full of examples of people who were asked to do things that did not make a lick of logical sense and for which they had no resources whatsoever. 
but they were led by God to make a decision and to take action that defied human reason. When Jesus called, not Jesus, but, well, actually it was, but in the Old Testament um, came through a different channel. When God appointed Gideon to go and deal with the, the foreign armies, do you remember what he said to him? You know, gather up all the men. There was about 30,000, and eventually he told all of them that were afraid to go home, it's okay, it's down to 10,000, and then that was still too many, and so God had uh, Gideon give them, uh, you know, a sign, gave Gideon a sign to watch for, and long story short, Gideon ends up with 300 men. That's it. Do you know the size of the army he was sent to disperse? 150,000. Now, who goes up against 150,000 men with 300 that has a, a brain in their head? The person that has heard God say, this is what I want you to do. And when Gideon goes, they put their lights under the jars and they go rattling and all of a sudden the lights burst out on the camp and the people of the foreign armies in such confusion and disarray that they end up killing off each other. And it's an amazing victory that God has completely enacted that made no military sense. In fact, Gideon makes no military sense. He's like the number one bad choice for a general. He's hiding when the angel finds him. Because he's so scared himself. And God calls him to do this thing. I suspect when the Israelites came up against the Red Sea with the Egyptian army hot on their uh, heels, that, you know, they're beginning to wonder... Is this a suicide mission? He brought us out here to kill us. They would have blamed it all on Moses, except there was this pillar of cloud that was leading them that was the glory of God. And they figured God was in on the conspiracy to, to kill them. And they were going to drown. What's the deal? It's either slaughter by the Egyptians or drowning in the Red Sea. And then God gives Moses a very logical direction. Moses, hold out your stick. Oh, that's going to do it. And the Red Sea parts. It's not just biblical examples. Many years ago, God said to, to Rowena and to me, pack up your stuff and go north to the college that I've shown you to go to, to Call Falls College. We had... Not enough money for the trip. We had everything we owned in a broken down, worn out Ford, whatever it was, I forget, Valiant or something. Ah, it was a Chrysler. What was it? Falcon. Falcon. That's what it was. A little Ford Falcon. Lime green with rounded corners. So it's aerodynamic. And we headed north to the school. We hadn't even been accepted. We sent an application, but we hadn't heard a word. 
and we were appearing the day class started with the intention of going to class. Who does that? But it all worked out. Miracle after miracle after miracle to get us there through three breakdowns, to have an apartment ready, fully furnished, to start class. The dean said, normally we require people to have an application approved, but since you're here, and the doors were opened, because God was in it. Makes no sense. Unless God has spoken, and we had clearly heard God speak. Both of us, go to the college that I have shown you. Go! You know, I I remember interviewing a candidate a number of years ago who felt God had called him to go to Africa as a missionary. I don't know why it's always Africa, but anyway. He had felt God calling him to go to Africa as a missionary. And he was sitting with the committee, and we were having some serious doubts about his ability to be a missionary anywhere, much less Africa. And so uh, we expressed those doubts and concerns to him. And I'll, I'll never forget his response, you know. He just kind of almost with this pathetic, whiny voice, well, but I feel God's called me, and what will I do? And God just emboldened me with faith. And I looked at him and I said, if God has called you to go to Africa, go to Africa. You don't need the Christian and Missionary Alliance. You don't need the approval of this committee. You don't need any credentials or ordination. If God has called you to go, get up and go. I wouldn't be sitting here. Go. He had no clue how to go. And that's a problem. But if God has called you, and you know God has called you, you better do it. Find a way. God will make a way. You pray, He will open doors. And that's really the message here that Jesus wants His disciples and us to take away. Don't rely on your logic. Rely on prayer. Seek the Lord. You've heard me tell uh, the interpretation of Jesus' statement whenever two or three of you are gathered and I'm in your midst and, and two or more of you agree as touching anything, I will do it for you. Some people interpret that like the conspiracy prayer. Let's get two or three people together that are on the same idea and wavelength and let them agree and then they can uh, badger the gates of heaven and twist God's arm and he'll do what they want because you're in agreement. That's nonsense. What he's really saying is when two or three of you have gathered to pray and you're waiting before me and you're praying and you all hear the same word from me so that you're in agreement as to what I'm telling you to do. Then claim that thing and move on it. Because this is my word. You can count on it. You can rely on it. Presumption is when I do what I want to do and expect God to fill in the the, the missing parts. 
But faith is when I hear clearly the word of the Lord and I do what he tells me to do regardless of the circumstances or the, the data or the details. We do not walk by sight. We walk by faith. More often than not, we will not see all of the logical circumstances. Because if it's of God, someone's going to be obscuring it to begin with. And if it's of God, he wants to get glory in a way that no human can claim. He wants to do something dramatic. I didn't plan this, but it is not an accident that this passage has turned up this morning at a time when we now have the county funds in the bank, and one year from now, this church will be different. It will not be the same physically. I'm not talking about the congregation. Hopefully we won't be the same Hopefully we'll change in the process. But the face of this building is not going to be the same. You're going to show up in a week or two and there won't be any trees out there. They've already told us they're taking them down this month. We may be here looking at a totally different frontage. We may be here looking at some totally different situation. We may not be here at all. We may be somewhere else. But we are at a crucial point where we need to seek God. We need to know what He wants to do. We need to hear from Him. And we need to know quickly. We're coming up on the Red Sea, so to speak. They're starting construction six months earlier than they told us they were. And we're on the horns of a dilemma, as it were. But God has a plan. Nothing has taken him off guard. There's no timetable that has surprised him. God has known all along. And he has special purposes for us that will bring him and him alone glory and will thrill the life out of us. It will just be so exciting to walk with God and see what he's going to do. And if we think we can figure it out, we're in deep trouble. But if we're willing to pray together and wait before the Lord until there's harmony and agreement and, and, and unity, and yes, we have heard God speak to us, and this is the thing He wants us to do, and we put it in His hands and watch it, oh my, the excitement that comes when God is in charge of, a, of an exciting venture. And you just see his hand at work day by day. Don't you know those disciples were just beside themselves when they came back off that trip? People got healed. Demons really laughed. I mean, they were like totally different. They were crazy and all weird and screaming profanity. And we cast out the spirit and they were normal. They were excited because they had had a time with God that had been challenging. And we're at a time in our church life where we can have a time with God that's challenging and exciting and thrilling. 
Or it can be very filled with stress and tension and frustration. And the difference lies in whether we try to figure it out and go to God with a plan, or whether we get before Him and wait on Him for a plan. And I'm confident that He has a way that He will lead us. And so the 5,000 were fed. And the disciples learned a lesson that they needed to know that there is nothing, there is nothing that God cannot do. It's a lesson that we need to learn. There is nothing that God cannot do. Father, I pray this morning as we consider this passage that you would open our eyes to your power and your guidance Lord, that we would be people of faith and people of prayer. That we would be seeking you with all of our heart, with only one thing on our mind. I want to know what you want to do. I want to know what you want to do. And we're ready to obey when we hear the word. Jordan's at flood tide. Jericho's on the other side. The promised land is over there. Go cross the Jordan. How will we do it? Go put your feet in the water and watch the mighty deeds of God. Lord, give us the faith to believe that whatever you tell us, you will follow through and accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen.